0: In the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. <clears throat> in the epistle for Mass today, we have Saint Paul talking to the Hebrews. Obviously, it's a very different audience than we're, since we're used to having St. Paul talk to the Thessalonians, the Ephesians, the Galatians and the rest are more or less pagan converts but here he's he's directing a letter directly to the Jewish converts and so there's a lot of Old Testament, New Testament parallel going on to get them to understand what Christ has done, who Christ is to get them to, to understand the fulfillment of their own religion, right? And so there's a lot of things which probably we don't know because we're not really trained um, in Old Testament as the Jews of of St. Paul's time were. We don't know all of the ins and outs in the ceremonial law because it's just not as pertinent as it were to us anymore. Once the the shadow gives way to the reality, look at the reality, not the shadow, right? So we've been focusing more on the shadow. But in order to get a better understanding, I think, of the reality, it's helpful to understand what came before, what prefigured it, and so we have a little attention this morning of the Old Testament, New Testament parallels, so that we can understand more properly the redemption which Christ wrought for us, and which is important for us to really, I think, get even more out of these two weeks, these... Two weeks which become quite a fervor pitch, these high feast days of our our religion. So Christ our Lord appears on the scene, as St. Paul says, and it paraly- parallels some things in, in Matthew and other parts of the New Testament, the Gospel, not in an earthly way, but he's talking about he, he appears on the scene in the presence of the Father. But he first appears, as Matthew records, Christ appears. He's here, now among men. as the Incarnation. But St. Paul is saying He's now appeared in the presence of the Father. So we're talking about not only the Incarnation, but now also the Redemption. Christ ascended, and by this point that Paul is writing, Christ has ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And so He's entered into that place. He's now in the presence of the Father into that greater tabernacle. Because remember the Old Testament, the, the setup of the temple, you have different courts of worship, court of the Gentiles, the court of the men, the court of the women, the place of the priests and then the Holy of Holies, the great tabernacle where the presence of God would, would come down. And of course we have, in a sense, the fulfillment of that type, that image within the own architecture of our own church. We have the outside, we have the transition space near the door, we have the place of the faithful, we have the place of the clergy, then the tabernacle, the great holy of holies. But we also understand it in the sense of the church. We, the church militant. And then there's the place of the church suffering, who will end up in heaven, they have great hope, but they are still under purgation. Then the church triumphant of the great ranks of saints, until you get to the place of Our Lady, and then, of course, that most intimate place, the place of the dwelling of God the Father, the Holy Ghost, with the Son at the Father's right hand. And so St. Paul is making allusion to this greater tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, ultimately in heaven, that great height of heaven. And so Christ passes through all the heaven of the saints on his way to the Father that holiest place where the Father dwells, just as the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? the high priest representing Christ to come, going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the year's sins of all the people of Israel. So St. Paul is pointing out Christ is a high priest. The reality of the high priest, the true high priest, of which the Old Testament was only a figure, And considering the reality of Christ, going up to God the Father, a very poor, very, very shadowy figure of the reality that Christ is. And so we are here to connect with our Lord, where he says in another place in the Gospels, that he will build a new temple. Right? when the Jews asked him for a sign, he's, and they were at the temple precinct, he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And John makes a parenthetical note. He's not talking about this temple of stone. He's talking about the temple of his body. And so St. Paul is alluding to this from John's Gospel. He's making a connection that our Lord promises to build a new temple not made with hands. Not made with hands. This is his own resurrected body into which we are incorporated in the church and it is this new reality, this new Jerusalem, not just the temple, a new Jerusalem that is being fashioned by the Son of God in obedience to the Father. It's a great mystery, a great reality which is more profound than the shadow which has prefigured it. So the perfect tabernacle is the means used by our Lord to bring us all of these blessings. What is the tabernacle? Where the divine essence dwells, but Christ's own body, which he uses as a means for our redemption. And it is these same means that are then glorified and taken up and now sit at the right hand of God the Father, from which all blessings flow. All good things come from God, And these blessings come specifically through Christ, through the Incarnation. All these blessings are, as far as we are concerned, still future to us. The profundity of these blessings. We're not yet there. We're still making our way. But we still have that high priest making intercession for us. For this new high priest, Christ our Lord, offers once and for all the sacrifice which is himself... This is the great difference between our Lord and his sacrifice and that which is used to prefigure that same sacrifice in the Old Testament. You had a whole tribe of priests offering sacrifices daily of lambs, goats, birds, heifers, for ritual cleansing. But here, because the high priest is God himself... And the priest is also the victim. This sacrifice is offered only once, once for all, because it is God himself. So the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, which Paul makes allusion to from the Old Testament, is a ceremonial purification of a man who had been in contact with a dead body. He had to have these ashes of the heifer sprinkled on him to make him fit for external worship. Because he was externally impure. None of these Old Testament things could touch the conscience. They didn't touch the soul. There was only ritual purity or impurity. And this is why our Lord gets so frustrated with the Pharisees and the Jews because that's where they are. They're on the surface. He's offering us tremendous blessing and grace by purifying our conscience, not just mere observance. And they were fine with the observance. It was almost as though they prefigured St. Augustine who said, Oh Lord, make me pure, just not yet. Not wanting that interior regeneration which Christ offers through his own sacrifice. So this sprinkling of ashes, which is a ceremony of purification, so much the more about Christ's sacrifice because of the real meritorious causality that Christ's sacrifice has. It is the blood of Christ which purges our consciences from dead works. Here St. Paul is connecting the ritual purification of touching a dead body with Christ's meritorious causality of purifying us from dead works of mere external observance of ceremonial or even moral law, but rather living by faith, living by the new law of grace, living divinized, making merit of our own accord because we are in union with Christ. He's saying, St. Paul is, in contradistinction to St. James, who says, faith without works is dead, St. Paul is saying the flip side, works without faith are dead. We need both. Faith and works. We have to have both. So all the efforts to secure our justification by the observance of the law is really no better than being tied to a dead corpse. Not having faith. If we don't live by faith... It's empty, it's empty. So our Lord frees us from this legislative entanglement with the old law by His atonement and sets us free. But of course, even more so, for Christ offers through the Holy Ghost, that is, through His divinity. The Holy Trinity is acting to save us. So we are now under the new law, the divine dignity of the victim is what freedom from the disfigurement of the victim in the old law. He's making St. Paul is making a parallel. In the old law, you had to have a good animal to offer to God. You couldn't have a sheep missing an eye or that was lame or somehow disfigured because this was in prefigurement to Christ, the perfect victim, offering through the perfection of his divinity himself to save us, true atonement of our souls. Even more so, Christ is representative of his people, just as Moses was of his. They both represent their people in treating with God and ratifying a covenant. Remember in the Old Testament, Moses ratifies the covenant on Sinai of receiving the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but then ratifying it with a sacrifice and the sprinkling of the ashes and the blood of the victim. How much more so is Christ representative of His people? For He sheds His blood of the nature taken which He shares with us. He takes our nature in order to die in that nature, in order to save our nature. And thus, he ratifies the covenant. And in this sense, the covenant is to be considered as the last will and testament. Now, this type of testament, as we all know, just in legal terms, is not in force as long as the testator lives. You can always change the will as long as you're alive. Once you're dead, then your last will and testament takes effect. And thus, that which was announced at the Last Supper is then operative when Christ undergoes death on the cross his last will and testament becomes operative now the covenant is ratified we say that at every mass in the the words of consecration the new covenant in his blood not a mere figment, not a mere type, not a mere shadow a tremendous reality takes place on our altar each time this one unrepeatable sacrifice the fruits of which are now given for us we are as it were transported to that one sacrifice albeit in an unbloody manner but where this covenant between us and god is ratified through god the son become man and we are enabled to share these fruits through that great sacrament of baptism which is a death in union with christ it abolishes the guilt of sin On the principle that death cancels all claims. Death cancels all claims. And so we are baptized into the death of Christ. And therefore, sin has no more claim on us. Now we are in a position, not of punishment, but to inherit. And what do we inherit? The land of promise. The true land that was promised to Abraham. Not the Jordan River Valley, but heaven. That is the true land of promise which Christ now makes available to us. So the sacrifice we commemorate on this Passion Sunday is our deliverance from bondage of the old law and the exact fulfillment of all the types from the Old Testament. So let us take stock in these last two weeks of Lent of our redemption and the sacrifice by which it was wrought.